UK Motor Talk. We're at the uh, SMMT day at Millbrook, uh, as we do every year. But the novel feature this year, because it's the 40th anniversary of these test days, and I've been on far too many of them to uh, recount. But they've got a, well, let's call it reminiscence car park. They've, they've gathered together all kinds of cars from the last 40 years, uh, in part from people to play with. But uh, Phil and I thought we'd have a, a wander around and um, have a look-see at some of the the things that we've driven in the past because uh, uh, both of us have driven an awful lot of cars over the years. Yeah, some of our memories of driving, um, shall we say, fairly good cars in their day but by today's standards probably fairly mediocre. Um, we're standing behind a Golf GTI Mark, Mark 1, A-Ridge. Very nice, very clean. Um, Revolutionary car in its day, it really... Uh, the original hot hatch. The original hot hatch, it really defined the term and uh, has been very, very successful over its many iterations. Um, Parked next to a car which was developed by the late great Ayrton Senna, the Honda NSX, which I've personally driven one of these myself, and they're quite incredible. Um, all aluminium bodywork, all aluminium suspension components, V6 sat right behind you, go like stink and uh, look awesome as well. They were really the, the technological bee's knees in their day. Uh, I drove one in, in period as well. And I also, the next car up, uh, the Nissan Bluebird. Yes, there's a name from the past. Uh, a 1.6 LX. Now, I had one of these as a company car. Yeah. And you and I used to do rallies, night rallies in it. I remember the colour. Formula the company car. Material. Because <laughs> that was what was on the order sheet. Yeah, <laughs> yes, my company ordered it. Colour immaterial, and so it was. It was a sort of horrible beige, but... Uh, there you go. We did have a couple of um, fairly hairy brake fade moments on a couple of rallies, I remember. Yeah, yeah, we nearly collected a fence in one, uh, one particular uh, uh, rally we were on. I'm sure they, they never really worked out why I managed to put uh, go through so many brake pads, but there you go. Even the dealer looked askance when I had to take it in for brake pad changes. Cavalier, Cavalier V6. V6. I have to say one of the cars that I remember this era, uh, just about this era, yeah, the M-Reg, was the uh, Cavalier Turbo. Yes. And uh, there are not too many of those about. Um, incredibly quick car. I drove one at Silverstone. And uh, very, very quick. And, uh, and a lot of people have uh, shown interest on our website. So, yes, the, the road test is there on UK Motor Talk. Look it up. Lots of other people have done so. Yeah, next to the Cavalier we have an R34 Skyline GTR. Now I personally had an R33 GTR which was 492 horsepower, fairly rapid, but this is um, the next model up, done up in the Kelsonic Japanese GT colours. Um, unfortunately it should have had number 23 on it because most of the works cars in Japan had 23 because the numbers Nissan, which is two and three, spell the name of the company, which and is why the works cars usually have a number 23 on them. And of course it's also got on the side Nismo, which means it's got all of the right high-performance bits. Yeah. Got some serious um, traction. You've got four-wheel drive, which is predominantly rear-wheel drive, and it selects front-wheel drive as well if it's needed. It's all computer controlled on the side of the gearbox. You've got an RB26 engine, which is a 2.6 litre twin turbo, 
the diff for the front axle is actually in the sump or on, on side of the sump of the engine driving the front wheels. One of the drive shafts goes through the sump of the gear, of the engine. It's quite noticeable on this too that um, I mean this is this is serious kit. It's meant for the purpose. And while a lot of people can stick uh, wings on the back of these things, this has actually got a properly adjustable wing. Yeah. It means business. It also has a serious under tray on the 34 which has got a purpose-built carbon fibre diffuser as fitted as standard. Slightly more modern now, the uh, Nissan Qashqai. Uh, very, very popular uh, motor car. They've been very, very successful for the company. The Alpha 156 Twin Spark, the 1.8. Now these were touring car entrants as well, weren't they? Yes, With some very, very fancy front bodywork splitters. Yes, they were. They were, they were used in... Um, the DTM for a time as well. Obviously not the bodywork that we see here, it's highly modified. But yeah, very good car. Twin spark, you've got um, two spark plugs per cylinder, both firing slightly different times depending on how the engine management decides that it's gonna do to try and um, increase the power and clean up the engine more than anything. Right, let's move on a little more. A not uh, from a design or stylistic point of view, one of my favourite cars, the Nissan Duke. I'm not a great fan. Uh, I think they're as ugly as sin, but there we are. They, a lot of people like them. Yeah, um, the thing that amazes me with the cars is the styling seems to negate any useful space inside. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. And also the rear window being such a small aperture you might as well not have the rear window another later gti as we've already said incredibly successful a renault zoe a renault zoe very popular they took it uh, very very good names it's one of the things that uh, i guess uh, renault are very good at he's just yeah. uh, naming it I mean, it's a cute car isn't it it is quite a nice color of metallic purple as well but yeah, it's very, very clean. Some of the design features they have in the rear lights are quite futuristic. Mm. With a lot of blue plastic. It seems to be the green cars have lots of blue on them. I can never work that one out. But Now these, these cars are um, not in any particular order, I don't think. No. Um, but oh yes, they are. No, I've just realised they are in a technological order. So I'll come to that in a moment. We're standing behind one of the most technically advanced cars of its era. And it's more this current era is the BMW i8 uh, it looks spectacular the aerodynamics are fascinating but mostly the technology that's in here is is groundbreaking uh, and are now of course working its way into smaller cars yeah. but this was a huge steep learning curve for BMW every bit of technology they knew how to how to work is pretty much in this car yeah the chassis is carbon fiber there's a lot of um, high-tech materials go into the building of the car. And as Graham said, the aerodynamics are just amazing for a road car. It's got a lot of technology that you would normally only see on a, on a race car, basically. That's true. The aerodynamics are more attuned to what you would see on a track. And, and very much the technology in the, in the uh, power source. And talking of which... And now I can see why this is at the end of this row, because this is the Hyundai Nexo 
and this is Nexo perhaps in the next generation this is fuel cell technology now fuel cell well uh, I'm going to defer to Phil but essentially fuel cells are what power mm. spacecraft and may well uh, come to power post battery mm. some of the cars of the future but um, it's very difficult very expensive technology and there are very few cars have attempted it so far but this one has yeah, the hydrogen fuel cell, I think, personally, is probably going to supersede the battery technology, although they may well have batteries in them as well. Um, but it gives you the option to pull into a refuelling station, fill up with hydrogen as you would petrol, and then just get going on your way almost immediately. So the freedom of what we now have as the internal combustion engine is there with the fuel cell car um, as Graham said a lot of the technology still seems still needs a lot more serious development to make sure it's reliable and affordable because most of these cars I mean they're they're out of the realms of normal people as as, as far as everyday transport is concerned right I'm gonna uh, head for because I've only just spotted it uh, a personal favorite Oh no, it's not. It's not what I thought it was. Uh, there we are. My eyesight's not as good as it once was. I thought Ferrari 308, but it's possibly a Dino, M1. but it's the BMW M1. Uh, it's remarkable how close it does look to that yes. Ferrari. But then uh, I was going to say I've driven that, but I haven't. Well, <laughs> I, haven't, I, haven't driven, I have driven a 308. Um, so what else have we got down this end? We've got a Citroen... GS flat four air cooled quite a quick car tends to roll quite a bit on the corners I've done a few challenges through the Alps and we had one of these an estate version 1200 and it was keeping up with the rest of us although it did seem it was dragging its door handles around the corners but uh, yeah very very early hydro pneumatic technology right this rambles through um cars of the past and cars what we have driven uh, I'm going to um, before somebody else takes it out for a run finish on one of the most technically advanced absolutely revolutionary cars of its day in this case a what's that a G Reg 89 I think Quattro the Audi Quattro uh, this is the slightly longer version, so this is the road-going car, but four-wheel drive technology and a world-beater. It revolutionised Group B rallying, and in actual fact, every other manufacturer had to come out with a four-wheel drive car, because they, otherwise they just wouldn't compete with it. It was years ahead of everybody else. Um, Leyland came out with the Metro 6R4, uh, there was four-wheel drive Lanciers, there were four-wheel drive Peugeots, there were all sorts to try and keep up with this, but um, it was quite incredibly faster than most of it. And before of before the Group B cars got uh, too silly, this was this was certainly the one that, that triggered the, the what was effectively an arms race in terms of rally cars. As I say, this is a, a road-going, the Quattro Sport, which was the shorter wheelbase. Uh, I've driven one on the road and uh, driven one on track and the shorter wheelbase makes it incredibly twitchy which mm. is not a great thing for the road but is ideal for rallying because you're sideways half the time yeah and in rallying you need to change direction very very quickly 
and a lot of sideways action is required to get round some of the corners. Also, with the balance of this car, you've got a hell of a lot of weight hanging over the front axle. The four-wheel drive is probably the only way they could keep this in a straight line. <laughs> well, there, in a few minutes, uh, we've covered, uh, well, part certainly of the last 30 or 40 years of, um, of road car technology uh, and an interesting ramble, so, as I called it, Reminiscence Corner. Uh, others might call it uh, the Heritage End, but the SMMT, having assembled this collection of cars to celebrate its 40th anniversary of the test days. Used to be at Silverstone, I must admit I used to really like them there on the Grand Prix circuit, but now it's at Millbrook, the top secret uh, testing facility used by the industry, but for just uh, one day a year we all get invited to come up here and uh, try out the modern cars. I caught up with Mike Hawes, who's the chief executive of the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, the SMMT, and uh, we had a conversation about the state of the industry generally. Mike, uh, we've seen a lot of downturn in the industry in the last few months in the numbers. How do you see the future with Brexit imminent in some form or other? The industry is is on hold. It's it's, it's a very good question. I mean, you know, the future is always difficult to predict, doubly so now. We don't know because of the political uncertainty what's going to happen in the next day, never mind the next weeks, month, years and so forth. Um, you've seen across the industry the, the numbers have been negative in terms of production volumes are down. Registrations aren't too bad. I mean, we're running at about 2.3, 2.4 million vehicles a year in your registrations. And historically, that's relatively um, high levels. The big concern for us as a manufacturer is investment. Investment is effectively stalled. When that happens, you're not, that means you're not investing in plant and machinery just to maintain your competitors, your productivity. That comes to bite you in the longer term. Um, that's why we need an end to some of this uncertainty so the industry can look more confidently about the future. I think there's a lot of people will uh, sort of take the view, well, it's, it's only about cars. Well, it's a bit more than that. This is an 80-odd billion pound annual industry employing nearly a million people. So it's a major component part of, of the UK GDP. Absolutely. The UK car industry, you know, it's in Rightly say employs nigh on a million people, um, represents eighty two billion pounds contribution to the economy. We're the leading sector for exporting goods. Our contribution to the economy matters, but it also matters to people's livelihoods. So at the moment there's huge uncertainty. We've seen devastating news coming out of Swindon. Not just, you know, because of Brexit, but it's been one of the contributory factors. When it's such an important industry, which is totally integrated into the European and indeed the global industry, anything that changes the equilibrium we have, the way we trade, threatens the very existence of the industry. Now, we want to make sure that this industry prospers. The fundamentals are strong. Very highly skilled workforce, engineering excellence, and you see today brands that are world famous and in demand. We need to keep them, we need to make them grow best way to do that is endless uncertainty and politicians are going to have to compromise. One of the things that caught my eye earlier in the, your presentation was the number of truck movements on a daily basis that are entirely accounted for by moving parts, engines, gearboxes and other parts backwards and forwards across Europe for just-in-time production. Yeah, 1,100 trucks a day across the channel bringing parts 
just in time, just in sequence. They flow seamlessly, frictionlessly through the borders and go straight, not to a, to a warehouse, they go straight to line site. That is the efficiency which is built into the operation of the industry. So any change that puts a degree of friction delay will undermine that efficiency. And as soon as you start doing that, you become less competitive. So when you want to attract the next round of investment and you're always competing with someone else, it makes it that much harder. That's why we need to make sure whatever our future relationship is when we, when we leave Europe, frictionless trade is at its heart. The other thing that caught my eye is statistics wise was the, the fact that there's a very similar number of engines exported from this country annually to those imported annually and I think that that just illustrates what all those trucks are doing. Yeah, I mean we make uh, over two and a half million engines uh, a year, you know, many, many more engines than we make cars but that's because you know we've oh, this heritage of engineering excellence, I mean we're, you know, we're world renowned for excellence in internal combustion engines the industry is changing, it's moving to more plug-in hybrids, hybrids, electrification. The industry needs to move with it, and but it, always remember it is a global industry. So what we're about is trying to make sure people still look favourably on the UK because of the inherent strengths that we have here. I mean, very clearly the alternative technologies, the hybrids of various forms and the electrics and even the fuel cells and, and hydrogen powered cars uh, are the way we've got to go. Now what does the government need to do to, to stimulate because we're still very slow on the uptake of that sort of car. Yeah, the entire industry globally is moving to ultimately zero emission motoring. Now, it is again, it's quite competitive. You know, every country wants to get there as quickly as possible. The industry wants to get there. It's invested in pure electric vehicles, in plug-in electric, um, hydrogen even. You can invest in those technologies, but you will not get a return until they're mainstream because it's a volume business. So the industry is committed to this journey and it needs to make sure that these vehicles demand increases. At the moment, customers say, well, we like the idea, but concerns about infrastructure. Um, it's still you know, often a very expensive technology, so government incentives, long-term commitment to incentives uh, is important. Um, and it is about reassuring customers that these vehicles are going to be around for a long time and that they're a, a sensible investment which will deliver for the environment as well as their own wants. We haven't seen that, that uh, governmental support though uh, develop. Uh, it, 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 there was an initial enthusiasm a few years ago, there was government money in there, government support and that seems to be waning and that's not going to help people to make those decisions, particularly if you then tell the nation that they won't be able to drive diesel cars shortly. That's actually depressed a large part of the industry and switched people back to petrol. Yeah, there is, there's been a lot of uncertainty about the future of diesel, but the diesel vehicles that are being put on the market now and for the past two years are exempt from any of the proposed uh, chargings in, in major cities. Yes, we need to improve air quality in our cities and we need to do that quickly best way of doing it is getting, I would obviously say this, more new vehicles on the roads because they're immensely cleaner than the ones that they replace. Now, in, in terms of managing that shift, we need the, the environmental issues. It's been interesting over the past few weeks, much, coming much more to the fore with protests in London, various speeches. The Committee on Climate Change produced a report. Basically, that report says, it's independent, advisor to government, it says, yes, the UK can become net zero, but the challenge is to government to make some very tough decisions, very costly decisions, to incentivise people, individuals, consumers, businesses to make the transition in terms of cars, in terms of domestic, in terms of industrial. It won't come cheap, but 
ultimately that is the direction we're going. It's just a question of pace. Okay, well, we're talking about technologies we were a moment or two there. And I referred earlier to the reminiscence car park, the heritage car park, call it whatever you will. Um, but there are vehicles there that go back uh, sort of 40 years. We've come an awful long way in that 40 years. I drove a lot of those cars in period. I've road tested a lot of them in period. We've moved on an awful lot. Yeah, you see some of the cars we have today from sort of 40 years ago. You can see how the technology's evolved. Um, 40 years ago, you know, the technology about safety, for instance, was about um, ABS. Now we have autonomous emergency braking, technology that will actually break ahead of what you can do. If you look at the, the economy, the, the vehicles, the cars you see behind us, you get much, much more miles per gallon um, than anything from back 40 years ago. And also in more, more other things in terms of entertainment. Um, 40 years ago, the height of technology was an eight-track cassette. Now we compare your mobile phone to the dashboard, basically, and play whatever's on your phone. But safety, as you refer to, there's one of the great factors in, in car purchasing in those decisions these days. It's not just about finance or what fits the family or what would look good on the drive. Safety is very much an important uh, consideration. And yet, we're not so very far away from certainly the late 50s, the American car industry saying, safety will never sell cars. It's a very short-sighted view. Well, safety is, is for many customers, it's, it's almost taken as a given. They expect, they demand that their car is safe. Um, what you've seen uh, over the last 20 years or so is things like Euro NCAP, which is voluntary. Um, this basically rates the car according to their safety. Just about every manufacturer you know, will make sure they get five stars. You need five stars to be able to sell a family car. But the interesting thing about this is this is the government, this, this is not government regulation that's driving this innovation. It's the industry anticipating consumer expectation, trying to find new ways to ensure that their vehicles that they put on the road are safe, as safe as they possibly can be, because safety for all of them is the number one priority. Well, Phil, I think we've uh, just about done as much as we can today. It's the end of a long, hard day. Yeah. Driving all these cars that somebody else is uh, paying for. Uh, it's a tough gig, but somebody's got to do it. But we're absolutely cooked in the sun. You've got a big smile on your face because you've just come back from the hill course in the uh, Abarth. Yeah. What did you think of that? Um, a little go-kart. It's a modern car with old school technology. You feel part of the car and it goes like a rocket. Very, very, it's like a little roller skate. But I quite enjoyed it. I actually, could, actually had a really good grin on my face when I came back. <laughs> I have to say, I'm in mean, horses for courses, but I drove it this morning. I'm a little older than you and a little stiffer, perhaps in all the wrong places. Uh, and I found it just a bit too harsh for me. Yeah. And I wanted something a little more um, sophisticated. And I did actually say that as I got out of it. Uh, but we have driven a lot of cars today. What was your favourite car? Because I think the we both Stelvio. know. Definitely the Stelvio with the twin turbo V6. That was awesome. 520 horsepower, 0 to 63.8 seconds in an SUV is really amazing. Yeah, that's quite stunning. So the Alfa Romeo Stelvio. Uh, I looked at it when it first came out. I didn't get a chance to drive it. We've both driven it today and I think it's number one car of the day for, for both of us. As you say, uh, an SUV with all the right badging, with all the right right genes, yeah. um, and it, it, it drives like an Alfa Romeo. 
um, but it's 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 a supercar. Yeah. It's it's a it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, if you like. 170 plus miles an hour. Um, all right, it's quite a lot of money. It's uh, the very well spec'd up version we drove. 80 grand. That's yeah. that's that's quite a lot of money. Okay, so second best. Second best, I would probably say the Megane, the Renault Megane, Renault Sport. Although it was a bit torque steery, it it went. It handled fairly well. It was quite comfortable. Um, the surprise of the day for me was the DS3. Very small car, but inside it feels much bigger. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that's, that was a big surprise. Okay, uh, well, I didn't drive the DS3. Uh, I elected to uh, set that one out, but uh, have driven some very interesting things today. We, we did some relatively slow speed uh, city course stuff. Um, you know, it's real stop-start stuff, but we, we needed it as a camera mule, uh, and we picked for its height uh, a Mini Cooper S, and it's the first one I've driven for two or three years, and was very impressed. Oh, it was well-specced. It's, it's really loaded with technology, some of which is more irritating than functional. Um, but I, I really enjoyed the drive. It, it really is a, is a very nice, well-sorted car. It's a baby BMW, after all. Um, Anything that we drove that you weren't that keen on? Um, the Maserati version of the Alfa Romeo we took out, that didn't feel as sorted, I would say. Yeah. Um, that was disappointing, I think, um, compared to the Stelvio. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with that. I, I'm a big Maserati fan, uh, and I drove the Levante, the Maserati Levante last year. Um, this is a slightly new model. Uh, a bit entry or a bit relatively entry level we're still talking about the best part of 80 grand um, but it, it didn't have the, the, the it was plusher certainly it was not as as exciting to drive as as was the Stelvio but coming back to, to one of your other favorites was certainly for me the Megane I wasn't so bothered about the torque steer uh, I was more bothered about the fact that I couldn't make as rapid progress as I would have liked because I found I was in a queue but you know the fact is there are quite a lot of journalists here but there are a lot of cars and everybody's had chance to try plenty of things latest Lexus I think was one that we drove this morning yeah, yeah okay nice hybrid uh, it's the only hybrid in fact I think we drove today but uh, quite impressive but in a different league in terms of its drivability, if you like, uh, than the other sort of SUVs. Um, I must comment that the brakes were very harsh on the Lexus. They were either on or off. There was no progression to them, uh, uh, which was a bit disconcerting. <laughs> we, we both commented on that. We, we were pitching each other forward on the seatbelts just uh, without having to hit the brakes particularly hard, but they were very, very direct, very on-off. But anyway, we've had a great day, yeah. and all of the um, results and so on you'll be able to see, and opinions and so on, on UK Motor Talk, because it'll all be there soon. UK Motor Talk, a first-take media production.